Well, I watched the game. I, um, I don't haven't found the World Cup scintillating soccer until last night. It was that was uh, that was a great game. Um, anyway, uh, but even better, we've got God's word to get into. How good is it? Father, we want to thank you through your word that you speak to us. You tell us about the realities of life, how to deal with them, how to understand you. And so we pray, please, that you'll move our hearts to love your ways and help us to understand your power and the peace that you're bringing. Amen. Well, does anyone know who said this? I believe it is peace for our time. Sorry, who, who are you saying there, Peter? No, not Anthony Eden. Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of England. Uh, anyone know when he said it? Yeah, give us a, give us a year. 1938, September 1938. He'd just flown back from signing the Munich Agreement with Hitler and Mussolini and the French guy, Deladier, uh, <laughs> and uh, got off the plane, called a press conference and made this announcement. I believe it is peace for our time. One of the greatest political uh, blunders of all time. <laughs> Uh, because just a few months later, Germany rolled their tanks in violation of the agreement into Poland and started World War II, 50 million dead uh, and so on. Is it actually possible to have peace, peace in our time like he was promising? If history has proven anything, it's that we people aren't very good at living at peace. Uh, war, hatred, strife, murder have dominated every society in every age, in every nation, in every land. Uh, we, we see it ourselves on the news every day. And how many of the stresses and strains of the past week for ourselves have come from relational difficulties? Uh, what would it take to bring real peace, lasting peace? And not just you know, a situation where we're not throwing rocks at each other, but it's still an uneasy status quo, which is what the Munich Agreement was all about. We're just not going to shoot each other. We hate each other, but we're not going to shoot. Um, but actually, real harmony, common purpose, could it be done? And if so, how? Uh, is the answer politics? I know politics is uh, some people's favourite answer to a lot of things. Uh, but if we just vote in the other group, whoever they currently are, it doesn't matter which side you are, that all will be well. Uh, I don't think so. That's not, that's not going to bring real peace, is it? No, we've, had, we've changed governments all the time and still there's shootings in Sydney and still there's family breakdown. What about social re-engineering? That's what communism tried. We'll stop all conflict, all envy of each other if we just get rid of private ownership of everything. All right, and we'll just share it all. Well, just ask Korea, Vietnam or Ukraine if that works. <laughs> Uh, Rome thought that the way to peace was at the point of a sword, just have the biggest guns, right? That was the Pax Romana, uh, the peace of Rome. But where's Rome now? It collapsed because of corruption and rebellion. More police, better education, a voice. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying any of these are bad things or aren't helpful in some way, but what will make real peace? 
Well, any of them. Uh, John Lennon thought that he had the solution, didn't he, uh, a few years ago, a way to bring about a whole world of peace and harmony. What was John Lennon's answer? <laughs> Just get rid of religion. Religion is the problem. Uh, that's what causes it all. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Nothing to kill or die for, no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. It's a beautiful song. It's uh, always ranked as you know, one of the greatest songs of all time. I think it, it comes in about third after satisfaction and something else. But anyway, but, but we've tried for the last 50 years to make that a reality with a systematic push of secular humanism into every part of society has it worked? Has it had the result that Lenin wanted? Do families love each other more? Do uh, neighbours get on better? Is violence down? No, it doesn't work. Uh, there, there's even more disintegration hurt. Can there be real peace, and not just peace for our time, but lasting peace? Well, the promise of God in our passage today is that there is a solution, but it doesn't come from us, it comes from, from him. And it's not just an unrealistic pipe dream separated from the real world, it's real, it's happened already. Two weeks ago we, we heard Paul's prayer in chapter 1 for the Christians in Ephesus, and I guess for Christians everywhere, for us, to know the depths of the riches we have in Christ. And in particular, you remember Adam pointed out that his prayer ends up that we would grasp God's immeasurably great power towards us who believe. Well, since then, Paul's been explaining just how great and mighty God's power is. He says it's the power that raised Christ from the dead. That's, that's huge power, isn't it, right? To raise the dead. Um, it's the power that seated him in the heavenly realms over every power and dominion at the ch end of chapter 1. Last week, Dave showed us it's the exact same power that God exercises when he raises us who are dead in our sins back to life. God made us alive again in Christ by his great power. And in our passage today, Paul shows that what that mighty power means for our life together as believers, that we now have true and lasting peace, a, a peace which breaks down barriers, a peace which brings enemies together as friends and produces life and joy and hope. It's astonishing power. Let's get into it. Well, our passage starts with a call to remember, to remember what the reality of life like was before Jesus came into our lives. Now, some of us have forgotten what that was like. It was a very long time ago. We might even not be able to remember when we became Christians because we grew up in a Christian family and we just believed it all the time. Uh, some of us remember life before Christ all too well. But you see, he says that in verse 11. So then, remember... Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, 
excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. What was the reality of life like before without Christ? We were cut off. We were excluded in all kinds of different ways. Notice he uses the word Gentiles there in verse 11. If you're not familiar, it just means non-Jews. Before Jesus, all of humanity in the Old Testament were divided into two camps. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. There's Jews and everyone else. Uh, the Jews were God's people. They were the family of Abraham who, back in Genesis 12, God made tremendous promises to, wonderful promises, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And remember, this letter is written to the church in Ephesus, which isn't in Israel. It's, it's in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, the people of the church there, by and large, were Gentiles, not Jews. But Paul says there were devastating consequences to that, to being Gentiles. Five, in fact, that he lists there in verse 12. He says the first consequence of being a Gentile was that you were without Christ, if you've been following the last few weeks, you'd know that's a huge issue, that to be without Christ is the worst possible place anyone can be because it's only in Christ that you receive every spiritual blessing. Back from the start of the book, in chapter 1. It's only in Christ, remember God's plan, is to bring all things under Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. So to be without Christ there means you're missing out big time. Second consequence, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Uh, the Jews were God's special chosen people and try as you might, there was no way to become one of them. Right? You could only be a Jew if you were born one because it's about blood connections. It's about family tree, genetic inheritance. And didn't them Jews make sure you knew it? Uh, they wouldn't eat with you. They dressed different. Their hairstyles were different. They had their sons circumcised, unlike the other nations, as a physical mark to distinguish them from the rest of the world. A whole way of, of being designed to show who's in and who's out, that they're different and separate, special, and you're cut off. It's much like uh, the Jews still today in New York City. Uh, there's there's ultra-conservative uh, Jews there, but they w walk around and everyone knows who they are and that they, you don't belong to that group. But what does it matter if you can't be a Jew? Well, because the third consequence is that makes you a foreigner to the covenants of promise. Now, a covenant is a legally binding contract signed between two parties. Uh, you might find yourself at the moment under a social contract. If you're in an apartment block or a set of villas, uh, you may have had to sign a covenant uh, with everyone else. Uh, it's a written agreement with the other residents that you can't break without big consequences. And in this case, he's talking about the contract, the covenant between God and Israel. The covenant was established at Mount Sinai after God had saved the Israelites from terrible slavery in Egypt with the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. And at Mount Sinai they'd come to it and he said to them through Moses, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests and my holy nation. What a deal. What a contract. And as, as the full terms of the covenant are laid out as Exodus goes on and moves into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and those, those uh, books of the law, it, it's actually filled not just with rules but with tremendous promises from God to these people. They, they're promised a land flowing with milk and honey. They're promised that God will guard them. God will go with them. God will guide them in all their journeys. A wonderful future is coming. But the promises which God signed his name to there were made to Israel and to Israel alone. They weren't promises for the English. They weren't promises for the Irish or for the Romans or for the Maori or, or for the Vietnamese or for the Jews and Jews alone. We were cut off. That leads to the fourth consequence in Ephesians uh, verse 12, 2 verse 12 here. He says, as Gentiles, therefore, we were without hope. Uh, without hope. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a signed contract of God's promises guaranteeing that he will act for you, then there is no hope that he will. We heard last week that we were dead in our sins. Uh, we, we might like to think of ourselves as alive, but but we were like cut flowers, cut off from the source of life, with nothing in front of us but, well, we saw those images last week of the decay and the wilting and really only the prospect of wrath on Judgment Day. No hope. But that all leads to a final devastating consequence there at the end of verse 12. To be a Gentile is to be without God in the world. We were alienated from him completely. We lived here in God's world, but with no connection at all to God or the life that he gives. Because of our sin, we were God's great enemies. We were against God, and in his anger, God was against us, not for us. Cut off from everything God is and God has, severed completely from him. And back when this was written, there was a very real, very physical and chilling example of just how desperate a situation uh, we Gentiles were in. Uh, it was at the temple that stood in the middle of Jerusalem. Here's what it would look like if it was still standing. Uh, it was a massive structure, about 11 storeys tall. Uh, uh, but around it, and you can only just see it, I think I've got a laser pointer on here, don't I? Which button's that? The middle button. The middle button. Here, you can see there's a low wall that runs right around the temple. It was about waist height. I mean, there's, there's big walls in front of you, but there's this low wall that's running around it uh, at waist height. And on this wall... Every few metres were signs written in two languages, in Greek and in Latin. Uh, here's a reproduction of one that's been dug up uh, pretty recently by archaeologists. They found multiple, but here's a reproduction of one. Uh, it, it's, it's a warning sign written in different languages, and this is what it says. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade, that's that wall, 
uh, round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his ensuing death. <laughs> trespassers will be no, it's worse than trespassers will be shot, isn't it? You are going to die. Yeah, and you, it's your own fault. It's on your own head. Not many more threatening signs are there. If you are a Gentile stranger, you will die if you come close. And it be your fault because you disobeyed the warning. It's pretty hostile, isn't it? I wonder if that's what Paul has in mind when he writes about the wall of hostility that stands between us. And if you can't come into the temple, well, you can't have your sins dealt with because that's where it happens. That's what the temple's for, which means you're literally damned. But notice he says that he wants his readers to remember these things, to call them to mind, and particularly to remember that at one time you were all those things. But that's not the case anymore. Now that's all changed. Once you were like those Ephesians cut off without God and at war, but Christ is our peace. And so verse 13 begins, but... And it's one of those glorious Bible buts. Um, you, uh, you should always pay attention when you see the word but in the Bible. Uh, we saw an amazing one last week in verse 4. Uh, well, there's another one here in verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Now, God's plans really all along were to bless the nations of the world, who was the great mystery secret we'll hear about next week. But the, the promise God made to Abraham in the Bible in Genesis 12 was that through his descendants, all the nations will be blessed, not just his own people. And in that reading from Isaiah, though Israel might not have understood what God was saying, he was saying one day, it's in verse 19, the Lord would bring peace. Peace to who? Peace to the one who is far and the one who is near. And what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2 is that promise has now come into effect. There is peace and there can be peace even for Gentiles like us who were cut off. How? End of verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made, both group, who, made, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. We couldn't cross the wall. By nature, we didn't even want to cross the wall. But Jesus has torn down the wall. He's brought the wrecking ball to it. How? By his blood. And he's talking about the wonderful news at the heart of the gospel we we know and believe and trust. What, what was really happening when Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood there, he was bleeding to bring us peace. That is, he was offering in himself the one true sacrifice of sins, far better than the ones that the people of Israel were offering at the temple in Jerusalem. They had to keep bringing those because they never actually dealt with sin. They never changed human hearts. They never fixed the problem. Day after day, month after month, year after year, the Jews brought animals to the temple 
to die in their place for their sins. But it never worked. Not one sin was ever paid for. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, God's King and Saviour, came to offer himself once for the sins of the world. His death was enough for anyone and everyone, for the Jews who were close, but even for the Gentiles who were far away, who were cut off from God. In fact, you might remember that at the moment that Jesus died, one of the astonishing and lots of astonishing things that happened in that moment, but one of them was that the temple in the middle of the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where God was said to dwell, it was torn in two from top to bottom. The, the way was now open for access to God. You can come in. And in God's providence, I think it's no coincidence that the physical wall and the temple it excluded you from were both destroyed within one generation of Jesus going to the cross. It wasn't needed anymore. And what Paul wants us to grasp is there's only ultimately one place to find that peace now in the world. In Christ, at the cross. It's one piece, one place to find peace for, for everyone. There is no other place to find peace. And what a peace. It's not just the peace Neville Chamberlain was promising, war staved off for a few years, an uneasy status quo where enemies who hate each other stay behind their lines. We hate each other but we're not going to shoot. That's, that's not real peace. That's not the peace God brings to his son. It's far greater. You can't get better peace. It's summed up in the word in verse 16 there. Reconcile. Reconcile. Parties who have reconciled have forged a whole new way together in friendship. When friends fall out or a couple splits up, there's always a possibility, there's always a possibility that there can be reconciliation, a coming back together again. It's more than just acknowledging that there's a problem. It goes beyond making an apology. It's even more than just forgiving someone for the hurt. Reconciliation has happened when the relationship has been restored. That's when you're truly at peace with each other. That's the sort of peace that God produces by the blood of Jesus. And you can see it in verse 14. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. So he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Notice, it's pretty odd. Notice who's being reconciled. There's actually multiple levels to it. First of all, there's a reconciliation with God himself. Verse 16, God this, that he might reconcile you to God through Jesus on the cross. He was breaking down the wall of hostility between us and himself. The bulldozing of that wall around the temple, which said, keep out on pain of death. We're welcome to come into God's presence and receive all the blessings of chapter 1. But notice a surprising twist there, that it's not just Gentiles who needed this reconciliation. He says the Jews needed it too. 
God did this so as to reconcile both to God. The Jews thought they were superior, that they had the inside running with God and looked down on everyone else, excluding them. But in their arrogance, they didn't realise that they needed the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ just as much as the rest of the world. Notice that this reconciliation though, is not just between Jews and Gentiles and God, but it's also with each other. The wall is broken down between the Jews and Gentiles. In fact, we're told that that's God's purpose in all of this. He's building one new humanity out of the two. God's not just ended the war between us and him, but between people who couldn't stand each other and who wanted nothing to do with each other. He's breaking down that wall. It's much more like what happened in 1989 in Germany as opposed to what happened in 1938. Anyone remember what happened on November 9, 1989? The wall came down. That wall there, the Berlin Wall. East and West Germany, which had been divided and enemies since World War II, all of a sudden became one again. People who had been shooting at each other now became neighbours and friends. Families who'd been torn apart for 50 years could suddenly hug each other and that's what they, they raced across the shooting ground. In, there was, the wall is actually two walls, one on each side, with a, with a no man's land in between, the towers to shoot anyone who tried to cross. Right? They ran across it and embraced strangers. Like it, was, it was this magic moment if you watched it. No more killing ground. They were now one. And they are now one. That, that's what the gospel achieves. It brings us real and lasting peace with God, but it also brings an end to the old hostilities between people as well, between Jews and Gentiles, but also by extension between all sorts of other people as well. When the gospel came to the Maori, uh, actually through... A missionary from Australia, Samuel Marsden, who was an English chaplain here, the second chaplain, went on a mission trip to New Zealand and unlike in Australia, um, the, the native population of New Zealand fell over themselves to become Christians <laughs> and they've been warring tribes who've been just murdering each other for generations. They stopped and embraced each other as brothers in Christ. When I was at uni, there were two ladies who refused to sit in the same room as each other. Why? Because one was born in uh, Vietnam and the other was born in Laos. And they are immortal enemies. We cannot be in the same room together. Uh, bitter enemies. They both became Christian at the same time. And within a year, they become best friends. <laughs> because the gospel puts all that stuff to death. And look at the result of this piece in verse 19. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. What's the result of this peace God's bringing 
Well, it's nothing short of the complete overturning of all those terrible consequences of being cut off in verse 12. We're no longer cut off from Christ. He is the foundation of the church that he is building. We are no longer excluded from citizenship in Israel. We are fellow citizens together with them. We are no longer cut off from the covenants of promise. We are in a new covenant signed in Jesus' blood. We are no longer without hope because we are part of his kingdom and he will not let us down. We are no longer cut off from God. In fact, we are the house God is building, the temple, so he can dwell amongst us, with us. Do you understand the magnitude of what God has done in Christ? Do you understand, appreciate the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, the mighty working of his strength, that we can have that peace with him with each other now there's some huge and profound implications from all of that i'm just gonna i'm gonna tease out six i wrote down about 12 and there was more i could have kept going but anyway first implication what is the church well it's certainly not the physical structure that we're sitting in it's not those walls there right in that roof there they're pretty handy. I love having them. And they're quite pretty as well. Uh, but, but that's not the church. Right? And neither is the denomination the church. Anglicanism is not the church. Right? Or Presbyterianism. Right? You know what denominations are, don't you? They're, they're religious real estate agents who put up temporary rain shelters across the land, clubhouses for us to sit in. Right? That, that, that's all they are. Don't think anything more of denominations than they're just real estate agents. That's, that's really all they do. Um, Anglicanism is not the church. The, the church is the people that God has saved and united together. But it's even more than that because the church is the very purpose of God. It's the proclamation of God to the world of his wisdom. Second implication, because of that, God considers the unity of the church to be of incredible importance and we should be praying for it and working for it. But I want to put a caveat that we've got to be working for it in the right kind of way because the real unity is in the gospel, right? And so when church leaders don't have the gospel, we can't be united to them because they're cut off from God, let alone us. Right? So it's a right kind of unity. We're going to explore a lot more of that in chapter 4 in a couple of weeks' time because he's going to tease that out, this unity stuff. Third implication, church isn't an optional extra, if this is true. If you've been joined to God, God's purpose for you is to be joined, united to other believers. And he calls on us to meet together through the Bible, through to learn together, to pray together, to encourage each other, to spur each other. There's about 49 uh, different ways that we're told to engage with each other as Christian brothers and sisters as the church. So make church a priority. 49 is a weird number for me to say about 49. It's a, uh, about 50. <laughs> so make church a priority, won't you? Like Say no to other appointments. 
make sure your friends and families understand not to have get-togethers on Sundays or if they're going to have the get-togethers that either you won't be at it or they're joining you for church first and you're all going out afterwards. Make sure you can be with God's people for your benefit and for theirs. The fourth implication, to hold grudges against other believers, to be content with being at war with them, indeed not to be praying for and hoping for and seeking reconciliation between you, is to fight against God's purposes for you and for his church. You're fighting God on that one. You can't go on that way and still say you love God and his ways. This is the business that he's in, reconciliation. You might not know how to move forward. There may be all kinds of things that just don't seem to be over, you know, being able to be overcome. But you can at least make a start. Make a start by asking God to give you the right heart. Ask God to take away any resentment and bitterness that's in you. Ask him to heal your heart and help you to love this person. Pray for them that God might do that same work in them as well. And pray for the wisdom to discern a constructive way forward. Pray for humility and strength of character that it will take to move forward. That's a start anyway. Fifth implication. The peace with God and the peace with each other that we have now, that's a reality, does not mean that there will be no more trouble for us in this world. We may be reconciled to God and to each other and still working on that, but we are still at war with the world, which is at war with God. There is no peace for the wicked in that other reading. But as we get dressed for the battle... We've got to remember it's not one we wage with human weapons. We wage it with faith and prayer and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We'll see that in chapter 6. And we don't wage it out of hatred, but out of a desperate love for them, the others, to be reconciled to God as well. And so final implication, know that ethnicity is no barrier to God. I think sometimes we can look around at our fast-changing part of the world here in southwest Sydney and we see the ethnic and cultural diversity and assume that they, whoever they are, will never come across. It just couldn't happen, and nor should it happen, that Christianity is really only for people like us. You've got to get rid of that. Don't forget, we were the aliens and strangers cut off from God. We were the ethnic outsiders at one point. The same blood of Christ that brought us peace is the very blood of Christ that can bring anyone peace with God and he is in the business of bringing peace to those who are far off as well as peace to the people who are near and so will you join me in praying that God would work through us to see people from every background in our area come to know the love of our saviour and be united with us reconciled to God. Our Father, your power is immense. We know because you saved us. And if you saved us, you can save anyone. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that work. Help us to 
love one another dearly from the heart where there have been painful problems and hurts of the past that may still be there. Please take away any resentment and bitterness in us. Help us to uh, be praying for and working towards peace. Uh, we thank you that you do do bring reconciliation and do move people forward, sometimes through painful ways over years. But we pray that we would never give up on that hope. Father, we pray for our area that you would uh, send out your spirit before us uh, to soften hearts, to break hu human hearts in rebellion against you and to bring uh, white people, black people, uh, Asians, Africans, whoever, to Christ. Help us to be a light for the gospel in this area to who everyone. And we pray, please, that you would do your saving work and bring about miraculous change that will bring real peace in this community uh, and real peace with you and with us. In Jesus' name, amen.